Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as always, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our very special Christmas episode over 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas. exciting uh we've we've had christmas spooktaculars uh every year i think but this is our first animated feature this is our first tim burden feature our first disney feature it's so many firsts is this our also our first just our first kids film in general i think so i do think so yeah because you gently said you needed to hold off this year on hocus pocus until i could convince you that it's the most amazing film ever (laughs) so yes it is our first of, of so many's and that's really exciting and that that's it's an entirely different vibe for us because normally we're on here talking about uh intense sources of horror in these like r-rated horror films and i i think it might the conversation today might be a little bit more gentle than normal <laughs> yes but i i must admit that as i was watching it this time because both of us have seen this this film several times over as i was watching it this time I was trying to think a little bit more specifically about keeping in mind the things we talk about frequently, particularly the source of horror. What is the source of horror in Nightmare? And so I I was actually trying to think of it this time around in light of the conversations we've had. And you're right. It's definitely still going to be a lighter conversation. But I think it still fits, right? It still fits the, the bigger things that we keep coming back to again and again in our examinations. I I agree. I I think just because uh, this is such a well-made film, top to bottom, artistically, uh, it's such a strong idea for a for a film, and then the execution on that is just absolutely immaculate. This is some of the finest uh, stop motion animation uh, that you're ever going to see because it is insanely impressive just how many little figurines and figures it took to make this. There are 109,440 individual frames taken for this picture. So someone literally sat there with a camera and took that that many times. There were 20 different sound stages used for filming. There were 227 puppets created for the film, and Jack Skellington alone had over 400 different heads that they would pop on and off of his little animated figure um, in order to evoke all of the different facial reactions. So just in terms of like the actual craft and making of this film, it is an incredibly tedious, long process, but I think the artistry really comes through and shows. Even to this day, I was, I was just stunned as an audience member watching in 2022 just about the level that these effects hold up to this day. Well, that's because it's practical, right? I mean, plain and simple, practical effects are are always going to hold up better because practical effects are driven only by the laws of 
of like physics and and the natural world, right? I actually, if you had let me guess, I would have I would have guessed uh, probably closer to three hundred thousand, just because I I always think about that scene in Parks and Rec where uh, Ben you know, is like. <laughs> Become a he yes. decides that he's gonna make that stop motion thing and like it's two seconds long and he's like that took me three months and I'm like this this is the truth uh so I always think about that scene and so that when I think of movies like this right that are like ninety minutes long and and are having just an incredible incredible amount of expression and just rich imagery. It's amazing to me, honestly, that anyone has the strength to make the, these types of films. Yeah, I, and I think just some of the most impressive are just the vast landscapes that they're able yes. to produce. Like on when Jack is climbing the hill in Halloween Town in front of the moon, and you see just that whole pumpkin patch field with so many individual yes. pumpkins there. Or when he's walking through the woods... And you just see all of these various different types of forestry and trees that he's moving in and weaving in and out of. and Or, in some cases, leaping over and jumping and yeah. tumbling through and around. It's just a feat to behold. It is. And it's amazing because what you're pointing out are the sheer number of, of settings. that, And there are several that they could have just said, no, this scene can just happen somewhere else. Right, like I think about about how detailed Jack's room is in his like little turret, and and that's an it's an incredibly detailed room. You know, I mean, the bookcase alone is just this masterpiece of of showing us all these things that actually tell us a lot about Jack. But they could have just said, no, we can just have him borrow the lab that we've already filmed in, or just do it in the square of Halloween Town yeah. because the the whole thing is he's figuring out how he's going to make Christmas anyway. And we exactly. already and we see in an earlier scene and a later scene that he does that makes those similar discoveries either in the auditorium or um, just in the square of Halloween Town. But they really commit to and give us that yeah, additional location because, well, I mean, frankly, just because probably it looked beautiful and they had amazing yeah. ideas for it, and it really does reveal so much just about the static. Uh, nature of Jack's life because you just see how much it just looks like it's been in that exact place for so long and then you just put all of that Christmas tinsel and stuff on top of your home which is yeah. kind of Christmas in and of itself isn't it yeah that that is actually one of the leading to one of the things I wanted to talk about and that is there's a lot of children's films that you keep watching as an adult almost despite the film and despite yourself right you, you watch it because it has that element of nostalgia for you and that nostalgia is, is able to carry through so much. And and there may be things that you're like, oh, I didn't really notice that when I was little. But Nightmare Before Christmas, the entire film is one that I think just gets richer the older you are because there are so many things that you really can't understand until you're an adult. Like, you know, to what degree is Christmas this fabricated thing that we do, you know, or to what degree is Christmas just another thing that that a lot of adults have to get through right or like you said um jack's his staticness of so much of the film that he's just like i just can't be static anymore uh it's it's hard to not watch this film as an adult and be like oh 
there have been moments in my like job where I've been like, please don't make me do this anymore. Please don't make me gear up for the same events that I've had to gear up for every single year. And that realization that you don't need to go elsewhere, you just need to maybe to think differently, right, about where you're at. Change your perspective. Yeah, exactly. In the initial idea of the film, Tim Burton talked about that artificial quality of holidays that he really enjoyed because he felt it saved him from his California town, which he felt was so kind of like dull. But then you have these holidays come over and you put this artificial nature on top of the world that you're in. And he was really fascinated by that idea because he was like, you see an entirely different side of your town um, come out and a different side of people win this artificial world that we all agree to is put on top of our regular world. And we stop what we do normally to participate in these holiday celebrations that in comparison to normal life are, they are rather wacky. They are in some ways nightmarish, even Christmas. We've talked about in previous episodes, the the concept of the carnivalesque and the medieval carnivals were religious but there was so much about it that was, you know, being pulled in from from more pagan traditions. And and I think, you know, you can just see that carried on through to the pageantry that we have for for our modern holidays, particularly Christmas. I saw this postcard that I think it was trying to be genuinely in the Christmas spirit, but it was horrifying because it had this like slightly creepy version of Santa. And, it, you know, it was some line about, you know, like he's always watching. And I'm like, is this? Is this supposed to be a joke? Because it's hysterical if it's a joke, but I don't think it is. So I think I'm just terrified that this is like part of the tradition and people are just like, oh, isn't that precious? Yeah, that is really like some like panopticism type thinking right there where you're like, yeah. there is that figure who is always watching you. So you always have to be on guard. That is interesting. The figure of Santa Claus being viewed in under the Foucaultian idea of panopticism <laughs> it really it really is because my first thought was like it felt very kgb-esque yeah. you know and and that very much fits in with with what Foucault was saying right that if you can build this system where people never know if they're being watched they're always going to act as though they're being watched right and that that is more or less what santa is promising right like i will always know if you're being good or bad so brace yourselves. And I think that is what is really, really interesting about these Halloween Town characters finding out Christmas and then subsequently being kind of confused by what they find because there are a lot of like creepy elements within yes. Christmas that make perfect sense that you would be like, yeah, uh, we're, ho- we're, we're weird, wacky Halloween characters. Um, so yeah, of course, when we hear that you're going to break into the house uh, and then give gifts, it fits, it sounds like something that you would do as a creepy Halloween character rather than as like a jovial, a jolly figure who brings joy. Yeah, there's there's really very little about Christmas that can't be seen as, as being rather dark and, and disturbing. And, and that is one of the really lovely parts about this film is that it exposes how pageantry out of context can be very, very dark and twisted. Um, and even in context, it might be a little dark and twisted. I do have a question for you because I've been trying to, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of days. Do you think though, is this a horror film? I was also thinking about a lot of the stuff that we were, that we typically talk about on this, on this podcast, such a source of horror. Is it even a horror film while watching it this time around? I'm, I don't know if it truly is a, a, a horror film. I, 
I'm not I'm not I'm not entirely sold either way because I don't truly think that the intended affect of the audience is to be horrified by the end. And so I think perhaps because of where we end the film and through so much of I think what where you're supposed to kind of sympathize I think with Jack's struggles of identity rather than being horrified at the actions that he takes. And so I think since so much of that, particularly since we're with the Jack Skellington POV character, and we are supposed to, as audiences, kind of relate um, to that character, I don't necessarily think that it would be fall under the guise of a conventional horror film. I think it has elements of horror in here. Right. It, it, yeah, it's certainly not disaffirmative. No. No. And... And you and I have argued for quite some time now that with the exception of, of horror comedy, which is its own genre, that that it's really hard to have an effective horror film that isn't at least a little disaffirmative. Uh, and so that was the, the thing that kept coming to my mind. And you're right. There are certainly horrific elements. And, you know, the debate is always like there's always the memes that are like, do I watch this movie at Halloween or at Christmas? And then it's like the answer is both. Both. My family actually had rules about the uh, appropriate time for Christmas uh, viewing films and versus Fantastic. other Halloween type of films. So I would watch the Halloween sequences of this film during Halloween, and I would watch the Christmas sequences of the film during the Christmas time of the year. So literally That's breaking funny. it up into two separate texts and consuming them at two different times of the years, which when I'm saying all of this out loud, it just reminds me of the insane societal pageantry, pageantry rules and regulations that we have on holidays and the policing that occurs uh, within yeah, the holidays. Yeah, this is wild to me. Is, I, I'm just saying it out loud. <laughs> Were you doing that to uphold the, the rules of, like your family's rules about what can be watched when? Is that why you did it or did you do it? Like, I have so many questions. I So when I was a kid, I really did. I think I, I was into this idea of, like, you, the film could be dissected. And there were in within the film, there were two holidays at, mm -hmm. at present and that they could be appreciated separately, which is, as an adult and now having watched the film, watching the film now almost exclusively only as a unit, I don't break it up anymore, right. <laughs> uh, it's completely uh, counter to the film's themes and yeah. message, but it certainly was the way that I primarily consumed this film growing up. That's so funny. I, I rather adore that. Precisely because of what you said, right? That, like, it actually is sort of counter to the themes because by the end, you know, Jack has realized that, that every holiday gets to have wonder and every holiday gets to have whimsy, but every holiday also gets to have a little nightmare, right? So that's funny that you divided it up. So for me, I think I agree with you that, that if we're doing our normal classification of affirmative versus disaffirmative, it certainly can't be classified as, as a horror, not, not in the same ranks anyway as a lot of the stuff that we're looking at. But I nevertheless feel like there are parts of this film beyond just like moments, there are like elements of this film that do fall under horror, but, but do so in large part because they're not treated with horror, if that makes sense. So there are some things that happen in this film that I just think happen very casually and cavalierly that I actually have sort of deeper problem with. So a really good example is Dr. Finkelstein 
and and his whole treatment of Sally that first off, although it's acknowledged because she keeps fighting it, that he's not doing good things. Why isn't anyone else upset about this? Why isn't Jack like, I don't I don't want him to necessarily swoop in and save the day because I don't think that would have been a good narrative either. But he there's like no acknowledgement in the film that maybe it's not okay to turn a blind eye to abuse. And by the end, he just creates a new woman. And there's that moment where like Jack looks fondly because he's he's looking fondly at everyone right in Halloween Town. But he looks over fondly at Dr. Finkelstein, who now has, you know, created a new woman that is even more in his image uh-huh. and he's just like oh haha and, and they do they, they they do that brief double take that you do in like cartoons where like he's looking at every people and then he does that wide-eyed classic jack look and but then yeah. it's you're right it is just back to normalcy it's like there's it's not that strange that this is no happened. and it's it's and it's not it's the like the strangeness of seeing two people that look the same that makes his eyes get big. Not the like, oh great, Doctor Finkelstein has made another human slave, and just sort of the whole treatment of, of Sally in general that I increasingly have problems with because of the fact that again, I don't feel like the the film is condemning some of these actions because it's just like, oh, but the, this is just what happens in Halloween Town, and and I have a problem with that idea that like Halloween Town means misogynist and harmful behavior so okay so i agree i think i really really agree with a lot of what you have said and brought up here and i think this applies throughout a lot of the film's views of holidays in general and i think it's just that this basis in a very conservative understanding of these holidays and it's a conservative construction uh, of these holidays and the horror I, I guess I would argue is that is the transgression against these clearly delineated boundaries and rules and regulations that we have on holiday times. So I guess in that way, then I guess it would fit more in. It would definitely. I guess it could for sure be viewed as a horror film, just not any disaffirmative horror film that we. Right. Uh, or, it's not disaffirmative only because. They don't go the extra step. So they, if you're sort of astutely watching this, you're going to notice that there's problems with society, right? That we are a problem. But the film doesn't it doesn't take that additional step to lift up the the sheet, right? And to reveal that, that we're the monster underneath. It just, like, takes us to the room that the bodies are in. And then it's like, okay, time to time to back out again. And and even even the conclusion... Which I like. I like the fact that by the end, Jack is inspired again to to reclaim uh, Halloween. I I appreciate all of that. But the but the feeling that like Santa Claus puts him back into his place, and Santa Claus is our only human character, or hu- really like human esque character, right? And so there's this weird like go back to where you belong second class citizens because Halloween is the second holiday that people love. I don't know. There was just, there's something that I, again, I don't think it was the film's intent, but it left a sort of bad taste in my mouth this time because I was thinking about it in terms of whether or not this film could be classified as horror. And so I think between the treatment of Sally and just sort of the idea of being able to create a new female 
servant slave, the sort of mistreatment of Jack as this like second class citizen. And then, and then of course there is the undeniable elements that we have to talk about with, you know, the Oogie Boogie man and, and just some of the racist issues. So we haven't talked about any scholarship because there, there really isn't any, there is a great book called a critical companion to Tim Burton by Adam. It's edited by Adam Barkman and Antonio Sana. And in there, there is an article, um, a couple articles on, on nightmare. There is also a, a chapter by Beatrix Hessa in a book called politics and fantasy media, where she's looking at the conservative and countercultural elements in nightmare. She talks explicitly about the potentially sexist and the definitely racist uh, elements of in the film, but there's, there's not much scholarship. So I, I thought that this would be a good place for you and I to kind of step in and talk about the things that we're noticing and the frameworks we're seeing. Yeah. So I, I guess we can go into, so we've introduced at least the, the two of those things that the countercultural and conservative article had mentioned, which is the Sally in comparison in reference to the kind of a feminist reading on the character. Um, we can come back more to that in a, in a, maybe in a, in a minute, as well as the conservative elements at the heart of a lot of these holidays that we see in Nightmare. And so I guess the last thing to kind of get into um, is, I guess, the race issue around Oogie Boogie. And that's a problem that goes all the way back to during development. Danny Elfman, who is the film's composer, lyricist, and he also uh, does the singing voice for Jack, was actually really, really worried um, when the film was being made that the NAACP would come out against the film uh, because of Oogie Boogie and the kind minstrelsy that the film evokes when using Oogie Boogie and introducing this character. And it is pretty hard to deny that in many of the shots, particularly when the lighting gets funky, that it that it looks a lot like a dancing Klansman. And that's a that's been a criticism that has been leveled all throughout this film. Uh, it was given to the director. Elfman brought it to Henry Selleck, who was the director. Um, the director did not does not take well to that criticism, saying that it's just this is what you do in cartoons. This is, you can animate people in whatever way you want. And so kind of just pushing back against it. But when the film was released, uh, Elfman was right. The NAACP was fairly upset with the, with the Oogie Boogie's depiction. Um, and the director then pushed back against the NAACP um, saying that it was again, just like what you do in cartoons and they had cat and referencing the fact that the because they had cast a black performer, Ken Page, as Oogie Boogie, that it was fine. Um, right. Now, whether or not you agree with the director on that is another discussion. And I, I guess right. that's where we, now we get to weigh in. Yeah. And, and the other thing that Hessa brings up is that the producers, part of the reason they countered the accusation is not only because Ken Page played the role and didn't seem to have a problem, but that Ken Page didn't consider the part problematic at all. And so they were like, see, so if a black person doesn't find it problematic, then it must not be so. And, and Hessa's like, yeah, I don't know if that works. She, she's like, obviously this does not constitute a valid defense for if racism is omnipresent, a black person may be just as imbued with racist ideology as a white one. Um, and, and so, you know, and she talks about, again, the, the connection that's very clear to the Ku Klux Klan 
and even some of the language, right? That that there's the idea that um, this is the only character, Oogie Boogie is the only character to lose his coherent sense of identity at the end, which is one of the things that I think Hesse argues that that is uh, intriguing, because he's the only one, right? That that literally unravels even even other monsters that like the clown with a tearaway face or um, the mayor, right? That, that their identity is built upon sort of multifacetedness. At the end, it's only Oogie Boogie that is is literally destroyed, right? And and that, again, if we're reading this as a sort of like, this is our, our one recognizable Black character, it, it brings up, I think, very similar questions that uh, Little Shop of Horrors brings up. Precisely. Yeah, it's like why in in the rest of the production that is filled with wacky characters who are, and I'll, I'll even give it this, not explicitly given any type of race because they are Halloween characters. And so I'm even willing to go into this, I'll, I'll accept your the cartoon argument that it's like in this cartoon, we're, we're not going to treat race as an issue. Fine. But you, he's the only black lead performer in this he is and so and in a way and they kind of do embrace that black identity and the way that they the character speaks it's kind of the the movement of it they also use a lot of uh, motifs that are commonly associated derogatorily with black americans such as the gambling aesthetic is he's the only character who really does that and then obviously when he is ripped apart and reduced to literal animals that goes back into the, like the dehumanization um, that black Americans have to face every day. So you're kind it's, there are a lot of questions yeah. that are here. And there's a, a faintly slash not so faint, uh, like voodoo esque element. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Being yeah. layered on top. And the worst part is, right. I love Oogie Boogie's song. I, I actually think the, the design is really interesting. I think the idea of having a sack filled with wiggly, squiggly things is, is rather amazing. So, so on their own, I, I appreciate what these elements are doing. It's just that when you put it together, there's an undeniable answer to that equation, right? Like separately X plus Y are not a problem, but when X plus Y equals Z is, and Z is a problem, then we have to ask ourselves about X and Y, right? More carefully. And I just think it's one of those cases where the producers, the directors, the filmmakers just needed to listen to, to Elfman and be like, this isn't how I'm reading it, but this is, if this is how other people might read it, I would rather change it than, than have anyone think that that's what I'm trying to do. Like that, they should have just been humble enough to do that. Uh, but that's <laughs> humbleness is not necessarily a trait <laughs> by which most filmmakers uh, come naturally too. So. Yeah, and this has been a thing that they are, so even as recent as the latest Netflix documentary on The Nightmare Before Christmas, this is a continued question of the, um, the race around Oogie Boogie and these kind of like accusations of racism that the filmmakers are still having to answer. And Henry Selleck has been pretty, he, he is not, does not seem really willing to accept any kind of criticism around this which is again kind of seems to be like that seems to be the wrong way to do it like he just doubling down on he's like it's a reference to uh 
the Betty Boop cartoons, the old man of the mountain, he says, Cab Calloway would dance the jazz dancing and sing Minnie the Moocher or old man of the mountain. And they would rotoscope him, trace him, turn him into a cartoon character, often turning him into an animal like a walrus. And he's like, I think those are the invent most inventive moments in cartoon history. No way racist, even though he was sometimes a villain. And we went with Ken Page, who's a black singer, and he had no problem with it. So just kind of like really doubling down on being like, no, 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 this is definitely inspired by old cartoons, not stopping to um, perhaps consider that maybe those old cartoons were in fact a product of perhaps a more racist time and which, and directly minstrelsy, um, the tradition that is just imbued and embedded in American entertainment. Um, so I, I think it's less of a, it's weird that Henry Selleck seems to think of this as maybe an attack against him rather than be, it's just an opportunity to be like, yeah, no, that was maybe, a, that was pretty racist or like maybe not our best, or, or not even pretty, just maybe not, maybe not the best move. See, and that's, that's what I think is the problem here is that, that there's, the attacks are feeling personal and and that's not what's happening, right? They're, they're not necessarily, although some people may be, but, but they're not necessarily saying, hey, you, Selick, and you, so-and-so, are racist. And they're not even saying, you intended to craft this racist depiction. They're saying, you know, if we think about historically where these images and these sounds are coming from, we need to ask ourselves if this is problematic to just casually portray. And so it would be easy enough um, humbling, but easy enough for them to say, you know, we we understand now why why people have found this to be problematic and racist. We never intended it to be that way, and we fought for a long time because we we didn't see it that way ourselves. But we've realized it's not up to us, right? At some point, um, particularly as as white as men. white men, um, yeah, you're you're like this does seem to be an interesting thing to kind of stake your claim on and being like. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I do. I am the one who gets to decide what is and is not all racist. Yeah, and the truth is, is that I don't want this film to get canceled, right? And and we cancel things with regularity and ease that I find a little disturbing. Because I, I think that the worst thing we can do, honestly, is to take something out as though it never existed and be like, oh, no, we were never having the racist materials. Instead, it's like, no, let's talk about how... In an episode of this, like, adorable TV show. Yeah. Um, like, Golden Girls, right? Let's talk about the fact that in Golden Girls, there is this discussion of race that's not entirely quite right yet. And talk about why. Like, I, I think we need to to be better about that. Because yeah. you were so right. I mean, there's there are literal cartoons where Bugs Bunny is is killing Indians. Yeah. Like, straight up. And, and... Most of them have been, again, sort of like removed, but they shouldn't be because we need to remember that, of course, we are a racist nation. How can we expect otherwise when our children were watching this acceptable behavior? Right. And and so I think it's important. I don't know. I just think it's important that they acknowledge intentions aside the the affect is is problematic. I could not agree more because. I think that these elements being present in the film don't necessarily mean that it should be canceled by any by any stretch of the imagination, but it is necessary to have these conversations or at least to when you're engaging in criticism around the film to 
to mention these facts. I, I think it would have been irresponsible of us to not bring this up in this conversation right now. And frankly, it seems a little bit irresponsible of the filmmakers to be just so insistent that it is not there and that the fact that it is a cartoon means that it can't possibly be racist. And I think a similar argument has been waged with the character of, of Sally. So Selick described her and used the word voluptuous, which I think is real gross to refer to a cartoon as voluptuous. But, you know, but there's a lot of, of discussion about like, oh, well, she's clearly designed, you know, she looks literally like a Barbie doll, you know, and, and people have complained about that. And of course, Hessa says, while the design for Sally is clearly sexist, it's meant to be. <laughs> Because in terms of plot, she's the female equivalent of Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. a creature sewn together. But then, but then she, at the end, she talks about the fact that that where there is a problematic element, actually isn't maybe in Sally because Sally, although she's crafted to be the damsel in distress, is is doing a lot of the saving. It, it's the fact that again, at the very end, there's sort of this like weirdly Pygmalion, like the whole story is Pygmalion-esque because Pygmalion is. is also sort of Frankenstein-esque, but but that it's more My Fair Lady, right? Where at the end we have a happy ending, but we are like, is it a happy ending that Dr. Finkelstein has created a new woman literally in his own image? Is that because like, are we saying that woman should really be in man's image? What is happening here? And, and I think that's, again, it's like the places in the margins that are causing a lot of the problems with this this film. And, and I really do think that it is, less of the inclusion of any one of these individual elements and more of just the tacit acceptance of the yes. of of these elements by the other characters in this world which i guess then could be lead us back to that kind of argument that is it does seem then that these holiday worlds that we're spending so much time in are a really rigid patriarchal yes. race a little bit racist kind of uh worlds that we that we're living in and constructing and i think that's that is a really interesting element to talk about and bring in these in in i think it's an interesting element to talk about in relationship to holidays which are yes. so much these just sacred spaces sacred periods of time in which you're really not supposed to question anything around it because the because one of the things about holidays is once you start pulling at the strings it the whole thing can fall apart santa claus is a lie that we tell our children i was reading something on on twitter the other day that was saying you know hey parents if you can try not to make the the super big present that you give to your kids be from santa claus if you can try to make it be from you because and then the person I don't remember if it was um, who said it, but but they said, as a kid growing up, I thought that the reason I wasn't getting presents was because I wasn't good enough because I've been told I just you know be good enough and Santa will be a present and I was trying my hardest and I was failing, and then they said I didn't realize until I was older it was because my family couldn't afford to buy me the big presents, and and so so there's like you're right that like we have these weird things that we are doing and encouraging. But the moment we start to pull it apart, like, like tell your children that this magical being will help. What, what's the worst that it could possibly do? And then you're like, oh, well, it could make a child feel that they're never good enough. Huh, interesting. And then you're just like, 
then you just pull the string and then and then we do get to the you know the the oogie boogie like it's just a bag of, of worms sort of things right that like idea that our there's a disintegration of identities but it's not the identities of people like you said it's the identity of holidays so you watched uh, in light of this episode you watched a another documentary the, the most recent one that's on on Netflix and you said that there was all sorts of of drama yeah, I mean, again, I guess if you, based on our conversation about, like, already, some of it I pulled from the documentary itself, but yeah, there is a lot of drama that happened behind the scenes during the making of this film. I mean, for starters, um, it was, a ri- the original idea was, that was conceived back in 1982, when Tim Burton was just working as a simple animator at the Walt Disney production company. And so that is where he kind of wrote that original Nightmare Before Christmas poem. Um, and then Disney was like, um, nope, this is too weird for us. Um, <laughs> you're actually, we're going to take all of your drawings and all of your ideas and we're going to hold on to them. Um, but we are going to fire you and all of the animators who did this. And then, and they did. And so Tim Burton went on his way for a little while. Um, and didn't return back to the project until the 90s after he had already had several big successes and he was a household name. Um, he comes back to Disney after he finds out that Disney still owns the, the rights to this because he made it while he was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, grr, capitalism. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole IP, like intellectual property um, and who owns what, depending on, on when you make it, not even like with the resources, but just like while you, quote, belong to a company. I find I find IP to be just a terrifying concept. Oh, yeah. And that is and so then that is what you had. To, Tim Burton was walking back into in the 90s. He was like, I this, these are mine. These are my ideas. I worked with the team of animators to come up with all these things, but you own it. So fine. I guess we work with you again. And now that he was a big name, he was like, I guess I'm willing to work with Disney. And Disney was willing to work with them. Although Disney did not release this through Disney uh, itself when it first came out. They put it through Touchstone Pictures, which oh, is interesting. one of their uh, subsidiaries, because they thought it would be too dark and scary for kids. Um, and so Tim Burton comes back to work with Disney, but which is touchstone <laughs> in this situation then, but not really because Tim Burton, as I had mentioned, was already kind of a big star at this time. He had made the Batman movies and the Pee Wee Herman film. And uh, it, you might be thinking, oh, during 1990, 1991, wasn't he making Batman Returns? He couldn't possibly have made Nightmare Before Christmas. And uh, dear listeners, you would be correct. Tim Burton did not really have any substantial part in the making, the actual making and creation of the film itself, which is arguably one of the things that the film crew is one of the most frustrated about in the reaction to this film. Because it's after the fact, uh, in ter- to help marketing, Disney brands this film Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, um, rather than the original title, just simply The Nightmare Before Christmas. And which seems to just undermine a lot of the work of Henry Selleck and this team of animators that they spent for two years working in sound studios in California by themselves. Henry Selleck actually mentioned Tim Burton only came to the animation studio uh, for a total of about about eight days over the course of that entire process. So he's like, 
Henry Selleck and the rest of the crew basically describe it as like, yeah, Tim, Tim Burton, it may have been his initial idea, but the idea that this whole world is Tim Burton's and that this is his is just a, a cultural lie that has been articulated and perpetuated by marketing. So another element that happened from around Oogie Boogie that occurred when Tim Burton was on set was Henry Selleck uh, had a very different idea of who the identity would be for Oogie Boogie. So instead of that kind of controversy of like the Oogie Boogie just being made of literal bugs and like animal dis and disgusting creatures, he wanted um, it to be inside Oogie Boogie. It was um, instead of just the moths and whatnot, it was Dr. Finkelstein mm. manipulating Oogie Boogie. Um, but Tim Burton hated that idea so much that uh, ac according to um, the writer and director, he flipped out and kicked a hole in the wall and then walked out of the room. Some people claim that he also yelled as he was leaving, are you trying to make a dupe out of oh. me after as he was as he was leaving? Because he was just so angry about anyone changing his idea of this Oogie Boogie character. So that just kind of shows you the kind of presence that Tim Burton had on this movie. And I'm not sure if, if I like Selleck's idea better, but like just the the idea that it was okay and and it wasn't but like that we have a, a culture and a system in place where it's okay for someone to descend like a god yell at people punish them and then depart and expect them to keep carrying out their things well it's it's a lot like halloween town so i guess that works yes deeply deeply patriarchal can i say that this just further reinforces for me the absolute need to get rid of this auteur model of understanding stuff because you either end up with someone like Joss Whedon who's super gross and is, is his name is stuck on all of these works that it's unfair right because it's a, because there's other people that deserve to still have their works acknowledged or we have something like like here, where his name is on it, because yes, his ideas may have been the source, the inspiration point, but that's not even why he's being listed, right? It's a, yeah. it's a marketing scheme. This is really like, and filled with, with injustice. And then in a lot of the ways, Tim Burton has basically just left the crew to defend all of the problems with it, the film, while taking all of the success for himself. So that discussion around Oogie Boogie, many, many people, including Danny Elfman and the writer, uh, who is Caroline Thompson, who was dating Danny Elfman at the time. Um, and oh. another fun fact, uh, she wasn't originally the person who was going to be the writer of this movie, but uh, the after the original writer did not want, was not delivering on the first mm. draft, Danny Elfman was like, well, my Caroline, my girlfriend right here, she's a script writer. Uh, why don't funny. we just let her write it? And then she did, and she she based a lot of the Sally and Jack on their relationship uh, at oh, that Oh, that's time. interesting. Yeah, it's a self it's a self insert character of Sally. Yeah. Caroline brought the concern about Oogie Boogie to Tim Burton and was like, "Hey, maybe we should change it." On one of the days he was on set, and Tim Burton went into a tirade about how he was about just like he was like, "It's not racist. I couldn't possibly be racist." So, that was actually his ultimate decision because they talked about how they were like, "Yeah, okay, maybe we could we could maybe change it." But Tim Burton really didn't want to do it. 
He did not want to change it. And now he's left Henry Selleck, the director, to defend that decision for him ever since. So we are like, we, we spent our whole section talking about Henry Selleck's response to it, but I guess maybe we should have been rephrased that to be that Tim Burton's response to this criticism too. It's equally an interesting to discuss and talk about. But yeah, that's Tim Burton is a really interesting figure in this process. And it sounds like based on the documentary, he made a lot of the crew on this film very angry from the way that he would just reap the success from it while uh, ignoring any criticisms or problem or any of the actual two years of work that it took to do it. Tim Burton himself said the main reason he didn't want to work on this project was really because he had Batman Returns and he did not want to be involved in the tedious and tiring process of stop motion animations. And, you know, like, that's okay, right? Like, if, if you're like, this is not... This is not something I really want to do. I, but I, I just want my idea to, to come to fruition, right? Like that happens all the time. That's Absolutely. Okay. Where the problem comes from is is the the misnomer of of calling it Tim Burton's and the fact that he had so much power, right? Because he also insisted on the design for Sally, and literally, Sally's doll could not the ankles could not support the weight of the puppet because you know she's designed to be like this you know, her little tiny feet, right? So, like, there's some things happening that he's coming in and insisting things be certain ways without being willing to take any of the, the responsibility for other stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really interesting. And so that you still have these fights breaking out kind of between the crew and, like, the crew who actually worked on it and then Tim Burton, who is the person who, again, I guess he... It, He's absolutely instrumental and forever important to this film because without him, the film would never have been produced, never would have gotten the light of day because Disney themselves was like one of the main reasons we did it is because Tim Burton was a big star now and they wanted to produce a project that would be technically ambitious on the same scale of Who Framed Roger Rabbit um, that had just come out a couple years before. And so that is explicitly why they greenlit this project was because of Tim Burton's name and the technical uh, things that would be required to produce this project. And there's so much that is, you know, amidst all this drama, right? There's so much that's great about it that it just like, I'm glad that the drama, which could have could have caused the project to collapse, right? Uh, didn't because we haven't even talked about like Catherine O'Hara's performance <laughs> and, and just the fact that like she is a gift to us all. Um, or, or Danny Elfman, whose music is fantastic i mean i don't watch this movie every year because i don't think i'm always a big fan of of the the tim burton-esque aesthetic of of stop motion so you know like corpse bride as well like i'm just not always a big fan of the aesthetic even if i am in awe of it um and i sometimes sometimes the problems for me of this film outweigh the the joys of it but what i do listen to every year at halloween and at Christmas and most months in between is, is the soundtrack, right? Or, or some version of the soundtrack. It might be the, the remixed version, but the music is just astonishing and so good. Yeah. I, I have listened to the soundtrack so many times. This is what I listen like as a, as a kid, this was one of my favorite musical things to listen to. I I really like standouts for me are obviously I love the opening Halloween Town song. Yes. Um, what's this is yes. I think 
one of it's a fantastic discovery song and it that, is. that was actually one of the first uh, sequences that the animators worked on um, wow. for this film which i think is i find all the more impressive yes uh, and selick uh, said that that was one of the first sequences that they worked on because they were gonna they had to show their progress to disney and they wanted oh. to show them one of the more like happy dr seuss-esque sequences first so that then when they would show them the like dark weird creepy stuff later they'd be like no no look it's we still have some of the disney style in there don't worry That's don't worry funny. don't don't shut us down i love that um so i love that song um eat the oogie boogie song with all its problems yes. is still is one of my favorite such songs song. in there yeah. just because it's such a good villains it is such a yes. good villain song and it has some of the best rhythms and music and musical composition in the whole thing. So yeah. I, I love those numbers and all of them, really. Yeah. Well, I think this uh, wraps down our discussion of A Nightmare Before Christmas. We are excited to be releasing it on The Night Before Christmas. Anthony, what else do people need to know before we set them free? Well, you can definitely go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. That helps us get the word out about our podcast and gets more people to listen here and join in our conversations about horror. You can also follow us on social media, which are listed in the description of this podcast. We love to hear from you. Let us know what you like, what you agree with, what you disagree with, and of course, what you want to see next. Thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. <laughs>